Hello and welcome to Euractiv's Agri-Food Podcast. I'm Natasha Foote. And I'm Gerardo Fortuna. And here's your weekly update on all things agriculture and food in the EU from Euractiv's Agri-Food News Team. So this week, uh, two main events happened. One is, is it was the informal uh, Agri-Fish Council, mm-hmm. uh, which was in the sunny Portugal. I know, actually physical moving countries just seems it just seems so far away from possibility doesn't it it's true uh, it's, it's actually true that there was a physical one in under the previous presidency in mm. germany uh, which was in um Koblenz, if i remember correctly oh, yeah. mm-hmm. uh it was at the beginning of no yeah the beginning of september and um uh, but for instance um croatian didn't uh, manage to organize an um you know a proper uh, informal um, gathering of ministers, which is quite a nice uh, occasion. I, I, I actually attended one uh, under the Finnish presidency. It was mm-hmm. quite nice. They they basically, ministers are wandering <laughs> in um, the rural areas of a certain country. Not, on, not only rural areas, but also uh, having a direct contact with farmers. And, I've heard uh, a lot about this legendary Finnish trip. Yeah. <laughs> Famous. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a, it was fine because also because in in Finland there are a lot of forests and I and mm-hmm. I actually yeah and I actually planted a tree uh, with this uh, you did found, what you found a tree no a plant plant oh you planted a tree yeah. okay oh that's and nice yeah, yeah 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 with with a very fancy tool which has some kind of weird Finnish name uh, but yeah basically I remember we were basically doing the same things. That the minister were doing, but mm-hmm. with uh, thirty minutes of, uh, of uh, distance in time, basically. So they, mm-hmm. they, we had two two bus buses, and uh, the minister had the buses, the bus uh, ahead, and we were basically doing the same thing. And it was quite quite interesting uh, to, and, and it was the same. I mean, I, we we saw from uh, Wojciechowski's Twitter page, uh, they mm-hmm. visited this um, Cork. Yeah, a couple of farms. I think they went to a couple of Cork farms. farms, I see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Had some nice was... pictures with some really lovely like, matching hats. It was like a family. <laughs> it was like a family picture, you know. And the family says, all oh, dress up the same and have a photo. <laughs> I really enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And, and the day after, had, uh, of course, uh, the informal, uh, so basically a normal session of the Agri-Fish Council. Informal, again, it wasn't, it wasn't an official one. There was also... Uh, Norbert Linz, the chair of the Agriculture uh, Parliament Committee, on behalf of, of course, uh, his institution. Uh, but there were there there were also yeah someone else someone else yeah. yeah. So were all the major agricultural, you know, policymakers and stakeholders, and there was also uh, the attendance of EU Farmers Association Copa Cajeca, which was. The, the the attendant that sparked some controversy this week and it's not the first time um they were in finland too <laughs> they were in finland too yeah well, they well it was they? it was you know the secretary general of uh is, is finnish mm, and, of course. Uh, oh of course yes of yeah. course. <laughs> that makes sense but i mean yeah so this has been going on for, for for years you know so it's not it's not it's not the first time they've gone by no by any means you know it's not um it wasn't a huge shock to see them there to anyone um, but over the last few years, you know, different stakeholders, different farmers associations and NGOs were kind of saying, well, you know, 
why is it just them that gets to go? Why nobody else? You know, obviously in the process of concluding these these talks and these long this long road of this cap reform, obviously, you know, policymakers will speak with all the stakeholders at any given moment and have all these different meetings and in the lead up. But Copacajeco is then the only stakeholder that is actually invited to, to this kind of final stage of this informal agri-fish um, council. And so there was some controversy about this and people were saying, you know, all other stakeholders need to be heard as well. And this kind of undermines the whole cap reform. And so, yeah, I, I spoke with, um, actually at a press conference uh, this week, I spoke with Portuguese agricultural minister who's the... But, but not in Portugal. Not in Portugal, unfortunately not. No, all still virtual. Girl can dream. One day, one day Gerardo will. I, I promise the, the next one you will, you'll be there. Thank you. It, Big it's, words. All, it's all yours. And the next you said one it on the podcast be, now, so that yeah, it means yeah. that that's... The next one could be under the Slovenian presidency. It's verbally binding here. So. Or under the, the French one. So yeah. Going to Slovenia. Anyway, yeah, so I, I spoke to the current chair of the Agri-Fish Council, that's Maria Doshi and Shunish. And, you know, she, she didn't really give a very solid reason for why they were there, but she essentially said, you know, they're always here. Um, and whereas the commissioner said he thought it was very important that they were there um, and then also stressed that, you know, they heard all voices of farmers, you know, in the process of the cap reform. Um, but, yeah, it really did kind of stir some stir some stir some drama <laughs> this 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 week. For their part, Copacajaca, they were saying, well, our organization has by far the widest coverage across all the member states. You know, they're active in all the different sectors, including organic, you know, and he was saying, also, he kind of put his hands up and said, well, I mean, I was invited, you know, um, that's at the discretion of the rotating EU presidencies. It's their decision. It's up to them to decide. But yeah, increasingly, this is becoming a kind of topic each time this kind of comes around, this issue. Various NGOs and smaller farmers associations, or uh, we spoke to European Coordination Via Campesina, which is a farmers association that represents the voices of small and medium scale farmers. Um, and, you know, they were actually protesting on the streets of Lisbon where the informal council uh, meeting was uh, was held, protesting for a fairer cap and also for their voices to be heard. So it, it will be interesting to see, you know, that they're calling basically on the next presidency not not to reproduce this um, this kind of historical uh, invitation. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because um, it's like an acid test on uh, how the environment around uh, the common agricultural policy you know the stakeholder environment mm. is changing because I mean we uh, we have this image of uh, common agricultural policy as something that is basically uh, of course regulated uh, decided by ministers and by uh, members of the European Parliament and that interests the relevant uh, farmers association national farmers association or that are actually under the umbrella of Kovaco Jacob. The fact that other uh, organizations too are, are, are now a bit unhappy about this old habit of having uh, just the farmers represented, just the, you know, mm -hmm. the usual stakeholders, uh, their voice represented by uh, the good old representative, let's say. Uh, of farmers, uh, it might be, you know, again, it's it, it's showing us that uh, the, the number, of, maybe of the yeah, the number of stakeholders mm -hmm. interest in in these talks uh, is is um, actually quite uh, big already, and you don't have only 
uh, NGOs or environmental uh, mm. um, non-profit organization, but also, as you said, uh, other, I wouldn't say competitors, but... Um, Not competitors, other, other stakeholders, other, other voices, stakeholders, other perspectives. Yeah. Like, for instance, Via Campesina, as you mentioned, iPhone 2 is the... Mm-hmm. Although Covaco Jaga also represented the, the organic farmer. Yeah. And actually, they did point out that IFOAM, the EU Organic Association, IFOAM, um, has been invited in the past. And so yeah, has the yeah, European Land the, Association, the ELO. Yeah, even the, well, I can't when I was in Finland, the <laughs> EEB, the European Environment Bureau, uh, was invited um, mm. and, and actually took the floor during the Informa. Oh, right. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's... Um, I suppose it's just funny. There's not really like a precedent. I mean, you can kind of invite who you want, but yeah. It's a... Yeah, again, it's it's it was like, a, it was the first time that actually an NGO was invited. I remember, right. I, remember I, I covered it. I, I wasn't just uh, having sauna with uh, colleagues. and <laughs> I, <laughs> I was actually trees. reporting. I was actually reporting. Sure. That's um, what they all say. Yeah, but... We believe um, you. But yeah, uh, it was kind of, uh, you know, something new, something, uh, you know, at uh, uh, first, you know, the first mm. time the NGO was invited at an, at an informal. Uh, while for, again, it, it's more of an habit, of a habit when when when, can, when we talk about Copa Cogeca mm-hmm. invited and something that is accepted, but, you know, it's... Uh, well, that's again, kind of what the reaction from Minister Antunish was. You know, she was just... I mean, she was quite surprised when I asked the question. Yeah. She really was, like, taken about, like, what? I mean, I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I, this has just always happened, which is... Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, which is not really an argument in itself. <laughs> Something's always happened. You think you maybe have to, like, actually reconsider what you're doing sometimes. And the other event that I wanted to oh, uh, yes. mention... A tiny, tiny thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, of course, I mean, next week there will be the, uh, probably, the potential final cap down. No, I mean, yeah. the there could be the last uh, trilogue. On the actual the, final cap down. Yeah. I, I feel like I, I said this like four times now. Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm not reliable anymore. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Check, check on check. <laughs> that as a, check. <laughs> like, oh, listen, no, don't listen to me. I'm not reliable. Yeah, you can check on our website, you know, like <laughs> randomly, <laughs> and see if they if they finally uh, find an agreement on this. Uh, there's also the Agrifish Council next. No, it's not. It's in two weeks. But the the final trilogue is um, next week. Next week, twenty four, twenty fifth. Yeah. Although I have to, we have to give a bit of a, a you know, not exactly a spoiler, uh, the opposite of a spoiler to our listeners, our loyal listeners, who, many of whom enjoyed our live blog, but we will not be doing a live blog, will we, Gerardo? I mean, we, we, we don't, we probably won't do this. Oh, a prob- it's gone from a no, absolutely never no, again, I mean, to a probably not. It's quite demanding. Uh, it, it's actually It's very funny. demanding. And, uh, but he, and last time it was a bit different because it was, um, uh, we had at least four days of coverage because there was yeah. the trial of France Diagrifish Counts. In this it was case, super intense. Yeah, this was, it was this fun, was, but it was like a lot. No, but it is also, this is also interesting because it seems that the uh, Portuguese presidency 
uh, will not do this again. So basically the, mm. the jumbo trilo concept, which is something we kind of warn um, lawmakers in our interviews because we had some like two or three interviews of people uh, that actually attended the, the jumbo trilogue and we actually uh, asked them if it could have been a problem, you know, a problem uh, having in the same room 27 ministers because there yeah, was you like really a, pushed, we pushed that question quite a lot of times yeah. and, and, then, like, and, no. and they were like no it's okay don't work and it's actually good <laughs> yeah. uh, but um, no they, they won't um, follow this path again so that there will be a trilogue and the outcome of the trilogue will be presented to ministers the week mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. so it's, there's no kind of uh, direct link between the trial because you know remember during the a jumbo trilogue, uh, you know, in the morning they were basically discussing and then the um, Antunish uh, uh, came back to the the council room with the other minister updating them on uh, the developments, uh, let's call it that, and uh, it's not going to be like this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the other um, interesting event uh, was, uh, of course, the visit of um, Joe Biden, the U.S. president, uh, to Europe, actually. Um, he, he actually reached the U.K. first, the uh, Cornwall, uh, for the G7, and then um, Brussels for the uh, NATO summit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the day after, uh, actually, was uh, uh, in the EU district to, for, for this EU-US summit. And now he's in Geneva, I think so, to talk with uh, uh, Vladimir Putin. Anyway, the whole they, itinerary. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they did. Uh, they did. Um, I mean, he did this um, trip, quite a trip. But during the EU US summit, uh, on the sidelines of this uh, important agreement, not agreement, but I mean important meeting hmm. that um, tried to. How can I say, um, fix the struggling relationship uh, uh, across the Atlantic after, mm. of course, the uh, Trump administration. Uh, on the side of this, there was an agreement. I mean, it was announced the suspension of uh, the uh, retaliatory tariffs uh, that were basically uh, came after the WTO dispute over uh, government subsidies to aircraft manufacturers, Airbus and Boeing, which actually affected the agri-food sector. Um, because, I mean, this tariff uh, uh, were, were put on uh, foodstuff, basically, uh, mm-hmm. from whiskey, wine, French wine, and so on. Yeah, I like the name, just the alcohol. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I mean, cheese too, no? Yeah, it's true. I mean, it affected a huge amount of products, didn't it? Indeed, indeed, and uh, and this is the thing that actually uh, basically every lawmaker and stakeholder in the agriculture sector were telling during these um, uh, months, actually, actually years, because it lasts. Uh, it, it's uh, since October 2019. It was that they basically uh, got stuck in, in crossfire because I mean, you know, it, it, it's something that affected disproportionately the agri-food sector, because we're talking about uh, uh, controversy, a dispute uh, happening because of subsidies in the aircraft uh, manufacturing sector. 
Um, so I, it was, you know, there was this kind of feeling of, uh, of something uh, not fair, of something that uh, should have been fixed as, as soon uh, as possible. And in the end, they had this, uh, they agreed on this um, suspension for five years, actually. So it's not really settled. But according to the Trade Commissioner, the EU Trade Commissioner, Valdis Androskis, this five year will be quite useful in order to, um, in order to find a permanent solution. Again, the agreement, the five year truce was accepted and welcomed by the entire agri-food sector. But yes, the main request is to find a permanent solution to this. Mm. Well, it definitely gives more stability and predictability Indeed. than the th- few months, what was it, the, the, the reprieve before? Four, four months, yeah, yeah, yeah. Four months. You said correct. Yeah, four months uh, in March. Remember, there was this uh, mm. um, even meeting between the uh, US Agriculture um, Secretary and Wojciechowski mm. uh, and the... Um, also not agreed, but I mean, they, they, they agreed on a common agenda, no? uh, not only about the U.S. tariffs, but also about the sustainability of the food system, which is at the top of the commission agenda. But it's, uh, it seems it, it's important for the Biden administration too. And in other news, there was um, an interesting referendum that happened in Switzerland um, last week, or could have been interesting. Um, But I won't say too much about it because um, our guest this week uh, is here to talk all about this. Um, So today we have with us Georgina Downs. Georgina is a journalist and also uh, a campaigner. Uh, She campaigns against the use of pesticides. And here's what she had to say about the referendum about the use of pesticides uh, also in the UK. So we invited you on here today, I mean, in the context of there was this recent referendum in Switzerland, which was could have potentially banned um, synthetic pesticides. I'm wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about this? What was it? Um, how did it come about? And, you know, what was the outcome of this referendum? Uh, yeah, the Switzerland referendum, it came about because um, although pesticide use had dropped 40% in the last decade, uh, an independent group of citizens, including scientists, doctors and growers, rightly concluded that merely reducing pesticides a bit is just it's just wholly inadequate uh, as it only needs to have one single exposure incident to result in significant damage to human health or, or to other other species exposed and, and there are indeed some countries where these pesticide reduction targets which I, I have to say are often put forward by many of the pesticide and environmental NGOs you know such targets have spectacularly failed uh, for example, the 50% reduction target that was previously set in France, uh, along with a pesticide tax, it just didn't work. Uh, and in fact, wasted the last 10 years as, as agricultural pesticide use in France ha- has overall increased over the last decade. Um, and I, I would also just add that those pushing for the mere reduction of pesticides also sends the wrong message, uh, as it implies it's okay to use these poisons, but just less. Well, it was never okay to, to use toxic chemicals in our food production systems, and, and certainly not for spraying in the locality of unprotected rural residents and communities like you know myself, my parents here in the UK, uh, and many others, not only in the UK, but, but in all countries around the world. So what the independent group of Swiss citizens did was to, to force the referendum. They had, they had recognised that the only real solution for the protection of both human health and the environment is for the full prohibition of use of all synthetic chemical pesticides, which um, you know, I have to say is, is especially crucial in relation to agricultural use, as it's the biggest sector most countries go globally. And so these citizens campaign for a complete ban on both agricultural and non-agricultural use of pesticides under the campaign title 
uh, for Switzerland without artificial pesticides. Um, unfortunately, uh, but probably as expected, there was very strong opposition to, to the proposal from the pesticide industry, the farming bodies, and, and, and others wanting to protect financial and business interests. Uh, and indeed, they did the usual uh, sort of scaremongering tactic, which I think is what uh, swung it in the end of saying that without pesticides, there would be no food and everyone would go hungry. Yet, you know, this claim has already been debunked in a UN report of the Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food in 2017, that concluded, and this is the actual quote from the UN's report, it said the assertion promoted by the agrochemical industry that pesticides are necessary to achieve food security is not only inaccurate, but dangerously misleading. In principle, there is adequate food to feed the world. Inequitable production and distribution systems present major blockages that prevent those in need from accessing it. And in fact, I, I go further than that, obviously, than to say that rather than not being enough food, there's actually a huge amount of food wasted every year. Uh, one UK report here found that uh, as much as half of all the worldwide food produced ends up as waste. And that is a, a whopping two billion tonnes uh, every year. So, you know, the Swiss proposal for prohibition of pesticides didn't pass, but it did get very significant support across the country and had almost 40 percent in favour. And so I have to say absolute huge hats off to all the all of my Swiss campaigning counterparts to have even got the vote. Um, it's getting the truth and facts recognised on pesticides amidst, amidst so much opposition um, I can say from my own experience, is really, really very, very hard. So from, from one campaign to another, you mentioned before your campaign, Georgina, which if I understood correctly, it is against the use of synthetic pesticides in agriculture, but also in towns and parks. Uh, do you think this ban could be feasible? Well, I mean, the, the, the UK pesticides campaign that I run here in the UK, um, I have to say the majority of reports that I receive from, from those affected suffering adverse health impacts is from rural residents and communities. And that's not really surprising, considering that the biggest sector for pesticide use in the UK per year is the agriculture sector. I mean, 80 percent, around 80 percent or just over of pesticide used in the UK every year is is, is agriculture. So you've got a smaller um, percentage. It's around 4 percent of non-agricultural use. Uh, so therefore, the you know statistically, it's not surprising that there's more people reporting uh, adverse health impacts from from agriculture. Um, I think a ban is, you know, it's, it's it's certainly feasible in relation to agricultural use. I mean, there's been studies that have found non-chemical methods can produce equivalent yield to uh, crops grown with uh, with pesticides. And obviously, when it's non-chemical methods, it's without the damaging effects on human health, on the environment, on other species. Uh, and on society in general. So, yeah, I think there was one study in, uh, that, that found that there was actually a, an increase in yield of up to 250%. So there's a lot of studies out there that have shown that farming can live and can survive without these, these toxic chemicals. Um, and you've also got an increasing number of, of, you know, very significant people who are recognizing that prohibiting pesticides really is the only way uh, forward from, from this pesticide crisis that's ever deepening and ever increasing. Um, including, for example, uh, the, the UN uh, report on the um, Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food that I mentioned earlier, they actually concluded that, you know, moving away from pesticide-reliant industrial agriculture to non-chemical farming methods should now be a political priority in all countries globally. Uh, even the former chief scientific advisor, Professor Ian Boyd, uh, who was the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs in the UK, a chief scientific advisor for many years, he issued a damning assessment of the regulatory approach globally for pesticides sprayed on crops 
including that the impacts of dose whole landscapes has been ignored, that the assumption by regulators that it's safe to use pesticides at industrial scales across landscapes is false and that, you know, it must change. And he's actually repeatedly advocated since then that pesticides need to be designed out of farming systems altogether. So he obviously feels that there is a way forward without having to rely on on uh, on these chemicals. Um, and as I say, there's numerous studies to show that there is a way of doing it without having to, to use pesticides. And, you know, there's more and more people now who are recognising that the only way forward to protect human health and the environment from the catastrophic impacts that are, you know, they've been going on for decades, um, not just here in the UK, not just in Switzerland, but obviously around Europe and globally, you've got, you know, billions of people that live next to sprayed fields in all of these countries that have crop spraying that, that, that takes place. And there's just no protection whatsoever for rural residents or communities. Operators you know, generally have protection when using agricultural pesticides. They'll be in PPE, uh, personal protective equipment. They'll have respirators. They'll be in you know, filter tractor cabs uh, when they're spraying the pesticides. But, but we residents, we just have absolutely no protection whatsoever. And that's been the main focus of my campaign for the last 20 years, trying to get you know, protection for people who are the, 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 most, the most exposed. And even the European legislation on pesticides, the authorization of pesticides recognizes in one of its um, articles and definitions that rural residents are a vulnerable group exposed to pesticides, um, very high levels of pesticides over the long term. So it's the only way forward really is to is to prohibit use and find different forms of farming um, that don't put human health uh, and the environment and other species at risk of harm. And you mentioned there already, you spoke about the UK um, and, and you mentioned DEFRA, the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs in the UK. Um, so um, the talks of restrictions elsewhere and there's talks in, going ongoing in the UK as well. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about this environment bill that's going through the UK Parliament at the moment, um, which carries an amendment restricting their use. And I know that you, you did a lot of work on that. Yeah, yeah, the Environment Bill is uh, is currently going through the House of Lords here in the UK, um, and there is a crucial amendment, it's just been tabled actually in the last few days, for mm. prohibiting the application of agricultural pesticides in the locality of residents' homes, schools, nurseries, hospitals, other healthcare facilities, in order to protect human health and, and the environment in rural areas. And this is actually the same protection measure that is called for in an ongoing petition here in the UK, uh, and that's been signed by over 13,500 mainly affected rural residents and communities, but also by a, a number of prominent figures, including the Hillsborough QC, Michael Mansfield, as well, believe it or not, as the Prime Minister's own father, Stanley Johnson. Prime wow. Minister, uh, Okay, got an endorsement there. <laughs> he, signed, he signed and supported the petition as well. Um, right. and, it, and also just to point out that this, this vital amendment has actually been tabled by a former DEFRA Minister for Food and Farming, Lord Whitty, uh, and is co-signed uh, co by the former advisor to the previous Prime Minister on the um, uh, Theresa May. Uh, so he was an advisor to her on the environment, Lord Randall of Uxbridge. So it really does have some very, very significant support from some key key people. And it's also, um, this, this particular amendment actually got adopted into the Agriculture Bill last year, um, following widespread full cross-party support in the House of Lords, including the main opposition front benches, which is obviously Labour and, and Liberal Democrat, uh, who have been very supportive of, of this amendment. But, but you know, very disappointingly, it was taken out again at the final stages in the House of Commons, and that was due to to the Conservative majority in in, in the Commons. So, um, but it's obviously essential to now get this amendment into the Environment Bill. You know, um, as I say, rural residents and communities have have no protection. This would actually provide you know, protection for uh, uh, such a 
a vulnerable group, including, you know, babies, children, pregnant women, elderly people, people are already ill. We, we all live, you know, um, next to these fields that are regularly sprayed. And you cannot control pesticides once they've been dispersed. They're airborne particles, droplets and vapours. And indeed, um, you know, volatilization, which is vapours that lift off crop sometime after application, that can occur days, weeks, even months after spraying. So it's not just a case of immediate spray drift at the time of the application. It's all the airborne uh, pollution and contamination that you have thereafter. And that is obviously ongoing for residents. We live permanently, you know, next to these fields. And there's just there's just ongoing spraying throughout every year. And if you're someone like myself and my family, we've lived next to sprayed fields for 35 years. So we've had an extraordinary amount of exposure to to these chemicals and had blood tests and blood samples and fat samples taken to show pesticides within our our bodies um me in particular has a whole raft of neurotoxic chemicals found uh in my system and it's not surprising therefore that i have you know ongoing neurological condition and um and, and, and other health problems these chemicals are known to be toxic they're known to be harmful to various systems in the body um you know High quality peer reviewed scientific studies and reviews have concluded that, that long term exposure to pesticides, like what residents receive, it can damage the function of different systems in the body, including the nervous, endocrine, immune system, reproductive system, renal, cardiovascular, respiratory. There's just a whole raft of systems that, that it's, it's, it's difficult to think of a system in the body that isn't impacted by these chemicals. So there has to be protection for the most vulnerable um, groups in in. Uh, in relation to the exposure of these chemicals, and that is rural residents and communities who have absolutely no protection so far. Since I'm the uh, only one uh, that is not coming from the UK, I'm going to ask a very practical, in this convo, of course, um, I'm going to ask a very practical question. If this uh, will pass, what would this mean in practice uh, for the UK, and particularly on what kind of timescale? Well, if, if this amendment is adopted, which obviously rural residents and communities across the UK will, will be hoping that it is, uh, and, this, and this time it stays in the bill, unlike the agriculture bill when it was only in for three weeks. But, you know, there would be regulations drafted for the prohibition to be introduced, uh, and that would then specify a distance to be set following consultation and what size the prohibition areas would, would need to be in order to have a significant protective effect for rural, res rural residents and communities. I mean, for example, it goes without saying that a small buffer zone of a few metres is not going to protect anyone. Uh, and indeed, scientific studies have in fact found pesticides transported in the air at very high levels, including at considerable distances away from where they were applied, um, up to, up to you know, a number of miles. I mean, there was a California study uh, that found up to three miles away um, pesticides from where the uh, application site was. Um, and obviously, they also calculated in such studies the health risks for rural, re rural residents and communities living within those distances. As I said earlier, obviously includes, you know, some of the most vulnerable subgroups, babies, children, pregnant women, elderly, those already ill or disabled. I mean, none, none, of, no, none of us should have been exposed to these um, harmful chemicals in the first place. It's an absolute given that, uh, you know, protection needs to be introduced, not just here, but obviously in other countries around the world. And, and, and that the distances where pesticides are prohibited, you know, need to be substantial in order to properly uh, properly be protective of rural residents and communities. So that's all from us this week. And this week, like every week, the Euractive Agri-Food podcast was produced by Euractive's Agri-Food news team. That's Gerardo Fortuna and Natasha Foote, with the support of Euractive's podcast producer, Evie Curie. And you can also find this podcast on all major streaming platforms. That's Apple, Amazon, Spotify and Stitcher. And be sure to subscribe to our newsletter so you don't miss the latest agriculture news from the EU. I'm Gerardo Fortuna, thanks for listening and see you next week. Mm -hmm.